Welcome to Plant Stories. The modern, the old, and the crazy in between. Mither fact! All of the loose strife flowers are related. That one's a myth. Isn't that crazy? They're all named loose strife and yet they're not actually related. That brings us into today's episode, The Purple Loose Strife. Yeah, so the purple loose strife is a perennial herb and it's part of the Lythrosae family. And its Latin name is Lythrum salicaria. That's one of the prettiest names. I know, right? It sounds like fancy. But uh, this plant is native to Eurasia, and it's since spread to North America. It's most common in eastern North America, although it's pretty much everywhere. It grows about 0.6 to 1.8 meters, or 2 to 6 feet tall. It's often found on riverbanks or in deep ditches you know like wet ditches in wetlands they have very narrow leaves and they end in these tall tapering spikes of purplish red flower as well as they have a very large rootstock that's really good at storing nutrients which is unfortunate when the plant is invasive (laughs) Uh, the plants usually bloom in the summertime, so sometime between like May and July, sometimes a little bit later. Uh, a mature plant is able to produce about 2.5 million seeds a year. And this is kind of the biggest reason that it's able to take over a small area quickly compared to some other plants. I know some plants we've talked about have we mentioned that they're rhizomatous so they can uh, use their own root systems to create kind of new sections of plants um, as well as seeding but this plant's primary way of reproducing is actually the seeds themselves and they just produce a massive amount of them so is this one of the exploding kinds or is this just like a regular they fall into the river and find new homes kind yeah more of a fall into the river and find new homes kind they just there's just so many of them and you know there are so many different ways of spreading them so initially the plant was introduced to america it's believed to be in like the early 19th century and They think that it was part of a European ship's ballast. And if you don't know what a ballast is, it's a compound like dirt. Yeah. (laughs) Um, It's a compound like dirt, sand, or rocks. And it's placed very low in a vessel um, to help improve stability. Uh, And then oftentimes, if the ship is filled with cargo or something of that nature, uh, then they dump the sand, rocks, dirt. Uh, I think there's much stricter regulations on that now. But they believe that that is how this plant was introduced to the U.S. And they believe that it was probably docked somewhere in New York, New York State. Uh, And then this ballast was discarded. 
and it happened to have the seeds in it. Um, however, they were also known to be sold in nurseries as decorative plants as early as 1829. It just wasn't necessarily like a popular plant in the way that like water hyacinths became very popular or kudzu had become very popular. Um, and it's also thought that at that time there was a lot of increased disturbance and stress in the wetlands from canal construction and that could have also assisted in the spread and then kind of one of the last more contributing factors is that it's thought that um, it could have been brought through the mud on wagons that were moving west so Hmm. yeah during like gold rushy times I guess I'll be honest. The Oregon my... Trail. <laughs> yeah, I'm like, honestly, my mental timeline, like, when was the Oregon Trail? Is that the 1800s? <laughs> yes. I'm like, I yes. don't know. Yeah. Um, yeah. But yeah, so. Well, yeah. <laughs> it's also believed that some of those seeds were caught in the mud as the wagons were going through some of those areas and brought to other places. And it only really takes one to grow. And then you've got 2.5 million seeds. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that feels like it should be enough. Uh, yeah. To cover and a small area. They're really pretty. Like I could understand not, you know, thinking that they're like, taking over or like seeing them on the road and like bringing them with you somewhere. Yeah, they are very pretty flowers. Um, And as much as like Kogan grass is almost like deadly destructive. Sorry guys, there's a thunderstorm going on. Um, But as much as Kogan grass is kind of directly destructive, this plant isn't necessarily directly destructive It's just able to take over really large habitats, and that's very damaging. So it's currently considered a noxious weed in many parts of the United States and Canada. And if you don't know what that actually means for the plants, because I think some people don't. I don't. Is, yeah. (laughs) Um, It is that it, having something classified as a noxious weed kind of restricts the sale and um, movement and focuses on removal of large species of the plant. So in that way, it's able to, you know, kind of go through and regulate having too much of that in areas where it's going to be really dangerous. So there are certain states that don't allow the sale of it at all. There are some places where there's very specific reasons that it might be for sale. Although I can't, I guess we'll talk about it later, but there are some medical uses for it. So I guess you could grow it for that, but otherwise it's primarily ornamental. And another thing to note, kind of like you had mentioned earlier in your fact check that's what i'm going to call it right now Mm -hmm. (laughs) um is that uh, loose strife is a very loose word and that it doesn't actually (laughs) necessarily relate to one type of plant there's actually a 
few varieties of loose strife, uh, and they're not all necessarily related. So the word loose strife comes from the Greek word for undo and the word for battle, which was loosely translated in English to loose strife. And it's also directly related to the name of the person who discovered it, which was Lucy Machian. I'm probably saying that wrong because I don't speak very good Greek, but um, that was the person who discovered it. So they called it that. And then eventually that was kind of just uh, turned into loose strife, basically. So, like, that's just one of the categorizing terms for, like, upright, tall, pretty flowers? Yes. Tapered point flowers, yes. Um, and the one that we're talking about, again, specifically, is the purple variety. Um, and that's because it just has purple-red flowers. And it also does have kind of, like, a darker like reddish tinge to its stock. Um, and so, you know, we've, we've kind of touched already on how it's invasive, but like I said, it, it's a plant that doesn't, I think initially strike you as invasive. And the real reason that it's kind of dangerous is that once purple loosestrife is able to get into a wetland habitat, it can, quickly outcompete native wetland plants. Um, it quickly becomes taller than them. It can, it doesn't drown, you know, so it can very quickly kind of eliminate some of those other plants creating a monoculture. And we've talked a little bit about monoculture before, but what's actually dangerous about monoculture is that it really has the ability to affect local ecosystems and create, uh, weakened stream strains of other local wildlife. And often those become more susceptible to disease and pests, as well as it also tends to increase soil erosion. So without kind of the different types of roots and stuff, kind of keeping the soil together. And with this one singular plant taking kind of the these major nutrients, you know, all plants need something that's a little bit different. Um, and so you've got this one plant taking all of one kind of nutrients from the soil and it, it can just do a number on it. Um, and these are like tap roots. They're not like widespread. So they're not helping much. Right. 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 Um, and even in those places, you know, the issue then just becomes, it just becomes this mass of roots that sucks up all the moisture, even in, even in that kind of scenario. So, um, purple loose strife specifically does also does not really support a lot of the wildlife in these wetland habitats. And this is especially true of migratory wildfowl who depend on a lot of the, you know, local fauna to build their nests and they eat the plants and, you know, that's how they make their homes. So when, those species of plants are replaced with purple loosestrife. Purple loosestrife doesn't have any of that, doesn't have really weedy grasses or, or anything like that. And so it can be very difficult for those animals to continue to survive 
in the wetlands. And uh, you might not know this, but wetlands actually, even though they make up a relatively small amount of the United States, they're being invaded do affect a lot of other systems, which is what makes this so dangerous. And about 20% of endangered wildlife exist in wetland systems at some point in their life cycle. So that's a lot of our endangered wildlife, um, you know, population to consider. So is this like... I sometimes get confused about the classification about like wetlands, marshes, swamps, bogs, like are these like all kind of being collected in the, in, in the title of wetlands or are they separate? Do you know? Um, Wetlands is both marshes and swamps. So wetlands are just saturated land. Um, and that can be anywhere where there's just like a lot of, um, you know, water that has collected. Mm-hmm. I believe the difference between a swamp and a marsh is actually the type of so like the acidity area that it's in. Well, usually like. Uh, marshes tend to be closer to like oceans and things like that because uh, they change with the tide. Oh, okay. Whereas swamps are primarily like stagnant water um, yeah. logged in, a, in an area. And they also, um, I believe, have different plants which is one of the other ways that they become classified because one of them has a little bit more salt water. One of them does, you know, so. Um, so how do we get rid of purple loose strife is, you know, obviously one of the big questions. And so the most effective form of controlling purple loose strife is to manually pull it out of the ground uh, obviously, that is quite labor intensive and not really time efficient. Um, and usually, in order for it to be truly effective, they have to be pulled before they become fully mature plants. So usually between one and two years. Otherwise, the probability of you actually getting the whole plant uh, becomes less. So they've tried a lot of different things. At one point, uh, stem cutting was attempted, but it was found to be ineffective because it actually affected other native plants as well and possibly even increased the spreading of the purple loosestrife because the purple loosestrife would quickly come back and spread more seeds and, you know, do that. Um, Other physical methods of control that have been used before, such as fire, flooding, um, an attempt to put like competing plants in the same area and create, you know, hopefully a more positive polyculture turned out to be similarly destructive and still ineffective for control of this plant, you know, (laughs) Um, setting it on fire. As long as the roots are there, it's going to grow back. Um, flooding this plant lives in wetlands it doesn't care 
Um, often putting competing plants there just caused more native wildlife to die out. So uh, there have been a few attempts for chemical control that have been somewhat effective, but it also, again, hurts other plants. So they introduced a specific weevil that targets purple blue strife that was actually from Eurasia and keeps the population in control there. Uh, and so far weevil? that's been the most, it's a bug. Oh, okay. It looks kind of like a beetle, but it's not the same. Apparently, <laughs> A weevil beetle. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so it like, comes in and you know just eats some of the leaves and you know kill some of them to keep them under control but the other reason that this has kind of been effective is because this plant is a really good pollinator for bees and so completely eradicating the plant after it's been planted can often hurt bee populations um, and that's why it's also dangerous to plant sometimes those like random wild flower packets that you'll get because they'll include seeds like this that are good for bees and will start to bring them to an area and they'll build a nest but then if you actually get rid of them when they're invasive plants or weeds um, you know you can affect that population of bees so it's important to consider all the you know, kind of environmental factors um, and when we introduce a bug like this to take care of something that's considered a biological control. So they try so the, to decrease it. <laughs> yeah. Did the weevils like have any like super negative effect to any other plants or animals or was that okay? Uh, no, the, the, at least as far as destroying other plants went, the weevils uh, primarily this plant the or the reason they picked these weevils is because this plant was their primary food source um and so they knew that after doing some testing that it would target those plants specifically um and it turns out that purple loosestrife also isn't all bad because it does have some other uses uh, mm -hmm. It is able to, kind of like some of the other plants we've talked about, absorb excess phosphorus and nitrogen from agricultural runoff. There was okay. a study done in which purple loosestrife was able to absorb some contaminants from the Hudson River, both by air and root systems. So it does have the ability to do that. Um, like we said, it's great pollinator for bees. Oh, we, we like bees. We do love bees. Um, the leaves of the plant are considered edible in smaller amounts and have a lot of calcium. And there are some sources that say the roots can be eaten. However, I was unable to find any sources that provided like real evidence for that. And it's not suggested that they be eaten raw for sure. But the flowers produce an edible dye that can be obtained. And uh, it's this like reddish color. Not purple. No, it's it's more red than purple, but it is pretty. Okay, is that something that like you would dye clothes with or food? 
it is more often used in food dye, but it's it's still an effective dye. It, it can be used to dye fabric. I think it would be paint more painstaking to get enough of it to dye like a large piece of fabric versus a food dye. Um, loosestrife was another plant that was mentioned by our good friend Dioscorides. <laughs> and at that time, it was thought of as being a very effective astringent and a good choice for stopping bleeding. And in traditional European medicine, it has been used to treat diarrhea, because apparently you can just use anything to treat that. Chronic intestinal upset, <laughs> inflammation, hemorrhoids, eczema, menstrual pains, swollen varicose veins, and actually uh, bleeding of the gums, so gingivitis mild gingivitis and so it's often presented as a tea although it can also be directly applied in cases of things like hemorrhoids or eczema we'll have to keep a lookout next time we're by the river yeah for sure um it is definitely in massachusetts so I'm like trying to think. I'm like, it it seems familiar. I'm like, it would be out now, right? You said summer. Yeah, it could definitely you could you could definitely still find it now. It might well, this was a weird year for plants, honestly. <laughs> um, yeah, because it things got, are not it, growing at the rate I thought they would. <laughs> yeah. Um so yeah. Purple loose drive, who knew, you know? What is your mini tip? My mini tip is to make sure you do not plant this in your garden. Um, I saw some cases where people were really reluctant to admit that they ha they're like, oh, this has been in my garden for ages and it doesn't do anything. And it's like, just because it hasn't spread necessarily, you know, directly outside of your garden doesn't mean it's not being taken by birds or oh, insects sure. or animals um, to another place and possibly it could be even that it doesn't necessarily have to be in a wetland to survive um, it just likes damp soil so it, there's always the possibility that the reason that it's not expanding in your garden is because you don't live in a wetland <laughs> but um, good point it could easily, you know, get to those places and, you know, really harm some of those wildlife that we talked about earlier that is, you know, becoming extinct. We're trying mm -hmm. to avoid that, I guess. 20%. <laughs> um, yeah. And you can do your part by, you know, doing a little research and making sure that what you're planting isn't going to affect the area around you, especially in places where we've lived on the East coast, like Maryland and Boston and things like that. Uh, wetland habitats are a big part of those areas. For sure. I never um, thought to check what was in my wildflower seed packets a good point yeah oftentimes they're not as regulated because it's just kind of like a mixed bag of whatever um but uh, if you don't know exactly what's in it 
you should always be aware that you could be potentially putting something harmful or dangerous into it. And even something that isn't inherently dangerous can be dangerous to an environment where it thrives too highly. I mean, that's really what invasive plants are. What are we going to talk about on our next episode? So I think that we're going to talk about English Ivy next time. Ooh, okay. I personally have had to cut back a lot of English Ivy in my life. (laughs) (laughs) It's true. But it's a very common plant. Mm-hmm. Can be useful ground cover. I get it. I get it. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you all for joining us on our latest episode of Plant Stories. This was Purple Loose Strife. Not very loose, but medium strife. <laughs> Uh, If you enjoyed this episode, give it a like, a comment, a subscribe, share it with a friend, share it with your family. And join us next week as we learn about a whole new invasive plant. Bye! Bye!